Welcome to the Student of the Game Fire Podcast with your host, Danny B. Today's guest is Eric Roden, 31 years of career and volunteer experience, retired this past August as Deputy Chief of the Milwaukee Fire Department where he was assigned under operations overseeing six battalions, National Fire Service instructor and author for over 20 years, board advisory member for Fire Safety Rescue Institute and former editor-in-chief for Fire Engineering and Fire Rescue and Urban Firefighter Magazine. The nuggets and gems Chief Roden drops and his viewpoints of leadership and learning to soak in the job makes this interview a fantastic conversation on self-reflective episode. With that, I present Mr. Eric Roden. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Eric Roden. Uh, I'm recently retired as a deputy chief with the city of Milwaukee Fire Department, where I uh, left as the chief of operations. That was essentially the citywide tour commander or shift supervisor, whatever your department calls it. Uh, but I was in charge of the entire city for one of three shifts and uh, responsible for six battalions and about 200 some people. And uh, it was a great job. Uh, I do miss it uh, tremendously. Uh, but we can go into, you know, reasons for retirement later on as we go. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the question is how I got into the fire service. And it's kind of a, um, I don't want to say an accidental entry into the fire service, but um, it was kind of in my blood, so to speak. Uh, my mother was an emergency room nurse for 50 years. So I was always surrounded by, you know, firefighters, nurses, cops uh, growing up. And always had kind of an exposure to what that job was, what it entailed, and um, some of the perks uh, on and off the job with it. And uh, But in all honesty, I really wanted a cool job. I didn't have to go to a lot of school to get. Um, I wasn't the best student growing up. Uh, school was kind of an afterthought. And, you know, obviously, uh, some of us can grow up and actually get past that in their lives. I was one of those uh, fortunate ones I was able to do that. And quickly, once I joined the uh, fire service, I realized I needed to go to a hell of a lot more school than I thought. And ironically, I ended up getting, um, obviously, all my certifications in the state of Wisconsin, your fire. I was, you know, obviously EMT and uh, realized early on, boy, it'd be nice to get promoted. So I went and got an associate's degree, then a bachelor degree, and started teaching at the local tech college uh, where I was for about 23, 24 years. And... Um, when got my master's degree and that's kind of where I stopped the nonsense. And ironically, um, I ended up dropping out of a PhD program to start urban firefighter with Ray McCormick. So, uh, I kind of uh, blame Ray for my, my, uh, finale in my education, but I think it was the best decision I ever made. Okay. All right. Um, uh, for those that don't know, can you tell us about the size of Milwaukee personnel stations, things of that nature? Sure. Um, you know, Milwaukee, it's it's um, it's a town in the upper Midwest. It's right on the lake. It's an hour north of Chicago. Um, and unfortunately, like a lot of uh, Rust Belt cities, experiences the ups and downs of the economy and the socioeconomics. And uh, when I started, we had 37 engines, 16 trucks. There were uh, five battalions back then uh, that were dropped down to six just before I came on. And through... 2005 to around, I want to say, 
well, up until last year, we were cutting, you know, numerous companies per year. And I think we're down to about 30 engines and uh, eight or nine trucks. So um, that's actually going up. Thankfully, we've had some recent legislative uh, action on our behalf. And uh, along with the police departments uh, and fire departments around the states, I've been taking a hit for so long. Uh, the recruitment is down and we can't even fill the spots uh, that we have. So passed some legislation through the state, through some uh, good lobbying on both the city uh, unions part and we were able to bring back some companies and we're actually increasing our staffing considerably over the next few years and we'll be adding companies and a lot of the ones we lost back so um that's a really good story for the the city of milwaukee it's taxpayers and and uh, citizenry anyone that comes there or has a fire in the city um it's a great department it's a very aggressive fire department um and i mean that in a professional sense we don't do stupid stuff kind of like we're here around the country. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, staunch professionalism and just a really dedicated and professional organization. And um, again, it's uh, divided into six battalions. Um, again, my last role was supervising those six battalions on a daily basis as the chief of operations or a deputy chief of operations, I should say. And um, uh, just a a very great place, a great place to work, a good place to live, um, and a, a great town to be fireman in. All right. Um, if you could elaborate, what's the minimum staffing on the engine and the trucks? Um, minimum staffing is four, um, but we have, uh, you know, one engine that runs five, and we have, let's see, one, two, uh, I want to say we have two trucks that run with five and all of our rescues run with a minimum of five. We have two rescues as well. They run five minimum. Okay. Okay. And I'm assuming the rescues are uh, citywide for motor vehicle accidents, any sort of rescue fires, things of that nature. Uh, yep. They go to everyone else's fires. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it, you know, and all honest, you know, the great, great companies, uh, chiefs love the rescues. Uh, obviously the trucks hate them for obvious reasons, but uh, chiefs love rescues. Okay. All right. No, no, uh, no rebuttal there. I mean, uh, as much as as much flack as rescue companies get, but I mean, they have to literally be a jack of all trades. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it takes a certain type of firefighter to, you know, even knock on the captain's door to, you know, apply to get into one of those companies. Uh, you know, we have a special operations uh, division in our, our department. Uh, we have a dive rescue team. Uh, our heavy urban rescue team is our two rescues and two engines that are not really squad companies, but they're de facto squad companies based on their role and what they do. And uh, our two rescues and we have uh, hazmat one. Uh, we have, you know, all the above special operations wise. Uh, it is a little more fragmented than other big cities, um, but you know, like Chicago uh, and us, we kind of run our own separate dive team. So they focus exclusively on that in Marine operations. We have a fire boat as well. Uh, it's very busy. And um, so, yeah, I mean, to, to get into one of the rescues, you, you can't suck. You have to be good at what you do. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. We, you know, a lot of jobs will require a ton of seniority to get into one of those companies, whereas my job will require, uh, obviously, you have to come from, you know, somewhere busy and, and kind of have a little bit of that experience. But, you know, the captains and lieutenants in those companies tend to recruit those they can mold and, and become the killers that uh, we all expect and want from those companies. All right. 
you kind of hit on it partially. So the next question for you is the term aggressive. And you did mention mm-hmm. your department is aggressive, but not in the cowboy foolishness way. Can you uh, elaborate more on that and how you, the chief officers of Milwaukee accept that? Because that word is, is mm-hmm. a double-sided coin. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a chief officer, I mean, you know, I mean to sound uh, dismissive by saying this, but your job is to be dead. Uh, chief's job at any fire is to make sure it goes according to a plan and to support or not support what the first few companies are doing, period. That's really all uh, in our job, what a battalion chief does and a deputy chief when I get there. Obviously, when I get there, I ask the chief, say, how are the searches? You know, uh, you know, how's the first line going and everything all right there and kind of the to get the baseline, you know, look at where the rigs are placed and try to fix bad situations before every rig gets into the block, obviously, so you're not doing a lot more if things go south. Um, but aggressive, you know, in the kind of, you know, the context that I was putting it in was we have standard operating, um, guidelines for virtually every type of fire we go to. Uh, we have very specific types of fire buildings in, in various neighborhoods, uh, almost cookie cutter per neighborhood. We have two and a half story, uh, what a lot of departments call Queen Anne's there. We call them German duplexes, um, or just large two and a halfs. We have bungalows, we have Polish flats, which are essentially like private dwelling brownstones and um, the way they're constructed shotgun bungalows. We have, you know, high rise, multiple dwellings, high rise commercial. So, um, you know, we have rules and regs for all of those. And that allows a department um, in my opinion, to be aggressive and can kind of be used in that same, you know, context when you say aggressive and, and, and having standard operating guidelines, because that is the plan. If everyone's following the plan and, doing what they're supposed to do, being where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, carrying what they're supposed to be carrying when they get there, um, you know, allows you to be, you know, uh, kind of an offensive firefighter and get in there, conduct searches, knowing where the first line is, knowing the second line is coming, um, knowing that the second truck's above you. Um, so that is aggressive, you know, and kind of the definition I like to use. And conversely, there's the aggressiveness where, you don't have all that help uh, arriving. Now, obviously, we're fortunate. We're, I don't want to say I had it manage adequate resources, but it's essentially what, what a lot of the metropolitan cities get to do. Um, so you can be a little sloppy. I'll kind of digress for a second here. Uh, you can be a little sloppy in your stretch. You maybe miss a room. Maybe, you know, you don't, you know, vent a window in front of the hose line fast enough, et cetera. Um, there's always somebody there to pick up that slack, uh, fix a bad situation uh, most of the time. Uh, again, conversely, some other jobs, they want to act accordingly without that staffing, without that extra help. And they're doing two or three more steps ahead of where they should be um, headed in that operation. That's where guys get jammed up, caught above a fire, um, unable or um, unable to deal with a, a water emergency, burst length, uh, short stretch, et cetera. Um, that's why I say a lot of our smaller town guys and girls have to really be on their game all the time and, you know, be the jack of all trades, uh, not just having a rescue center. You have to be good at everything, engine and truck work. So um, obviously I've been there, you know, starting out, you know, earlier in my career as a volunteer and a um, combo firefighter, combo department firefighter. You know, I, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to work, um, you know, with few people and, um, you know, you have to be that good. Uh, to be aggressive in one of those smaller departments. So it's when we lose 
sight of what we have and we are capable of doing in the first few minutes, that's when we that's when we start getting jammed up quickly. Okay. All right. Uh, I did forget to ask you, uh, what do you typically get um, on a Milwaukee structure fire response? Sure. Uh, we get four engines, two trucks, uh, three chiefs, a paramedic unit, and a rescue company. Um, now, it's a lot of people coming. Uh, we like to um, you know, waste no time getting adequate resources there as soon as possible. And, you know, you know, a lot of departments are always what ifing that, that, well, what if we get two fires? What if you get three fires? And, and it happens a lot in the city of Milwaukee. You'll have multiple fires going on. Um, but so do a lot of jobs. I don't care how big you are. And really, you know, the, the idea should be to flood, you know, those fires with as many people right away because it, you know, kind of a, um, an aphorism I like to use it, 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 it's the numbers on the first few companies or the numbers arriving in the first few minutes that make a difference. Not, not how many eventually get there. And, you know, if you send all of your department's resources to a structure fire, taking an ambulance out of service that can't run in a, a BLS or et cetera. So be it, you know, hopefully you have neighbors, hopefully you have, you know, mutual aid, et cetera, or automatic aid, what have you. Um, but in Milwaukee, we like to, you know, we use overwhelming force right off the bat and we don't make it fair for the fire. So that's, uh, that's kind of our philosophy. All right. Um, and I'm, and I'm assuming engines do engines work, trucks do truck work. Uh, are your trucks or two trucks, no water. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, yeah. They're just, they're, they're, they're quintessential basic trucks and, Obviously, our trucks carry all of the uh, the tools and the, the the nice toys. Our engines are pretty stripped down. They're they're basically engine and EMS. Um, but you know, we don't carry you know hearse tools or spreaders or anything like that on our engines. Um, fans, none of that stuff. All that stuff's on the truck. Um, and you know, I would say it's we're, we're a pretty basic fire department that does firefighting very well um, because we've been able to focus on engines being engines, trucks being trucks, and. You know, we don't cross staff rigs. Uh, even our paramedic units are are fully staffed with assigned personnel. We don't take, you know, somebody off the engine or the truck to hop on an ambulance, et cetera. So uh, when you throw your gear on the rig for the day, that's that's your company. And, and um, you know, um, obviously you could have various people coming in that day based on vacations and other time off. But, um, uh, yeah, we don't, uh, we don't do a Chinese fire drill or anything when a call comes in. Okay. Um... And are your personnel ALS or BLS? Uh, we have both. We run a two-tiered system in the city of Milwaukee. We, um, you know, we unless we have certain criteria based on our pro QA uh, dispatching for EMS that'll decide whether it's an advanced life support or basic life support run. Uh, but most of the time, we'll send an engine with um, EMTs. All of our firefighters are required to be EMTs if you were hired after 1985, I believe, and. Um, so that'll be our, our first response for uh, EMS. Uh, if it's an ALS call, uh, we'll dispatch a paramedic unit with that, or we can upgrade to ALS. And uh, a lot of our engines throughout the day now have uh, paramedics on them based on the numbers of paramedics that we have um, throughout our department. Um, I would say the lion's share of our engine companies have a paramedic, at least one paramedic on it per day now. Okay. And do the trucks run EMS? The trucks do their secondary. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's hard to get a truck spot in any city because of that, but, um, you know, we're no different. Um, but yeah, we'll, our trucks will, will go out, um, 
second, but, um, um, but you know, it's, you know, it's a lot, a lot easier day for the trucks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and one last question, uh, do you, does Milwaukee do uh, what I call PDAs, predetermined assignments or like, how do you, how does Milwaukee, um, uh, assign tasks from first due, second mm-hmm. due, third? Yes. Yeah, so that, that type of. Yeah, our standing operating guidelines, you know, have a um, assigned positions per rig. And um, I guess if I can go on a quick diatribe here on that, it's something I've written about um, when I was writing a lot for fire engineering and as the editor of Fire Rescue. Um, I think that's one of the single most important things to do in your department. A lot of departments tend to, you know, want to do everything, you know, possible and have every type of service delivery. Uh, but they fail to kind of focus on these basic responses, fires, um, some of the, you know, higher acuity um, emergencies, et cetera. And to not have assigned positions for each rig um, can create a lot of confusion, especially for an officer where, um, you know, you might change something up with who's on the nozzle for a certain day. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we can, determine that in the beginning of the tour during roll call, you know, we, we assign those positions, et cetera. But, um, you know, not having predetermined assignments is essentially kind of a crapshoot when you get there. And, uh, same goes for order of arrival assignments. Uh, you know, we're very strict about who's does what, when they get there. And that's very important. And we have that in writing and, you know, that's how a chief is able to ensure that things go according to plan. Um, if you don't have your standard operating guidelines, positions, et cetera, in writing, you don't have a plan, right? Mm-hmm. You essentially have what I refer to as street laws and the street laws are very dangerous. And that's, um, what I see leading to a lot of the, um, you know, significant injuries and line of duty deaths, et cetera, where, you know, a chief might say, oh, that's a great company. Yeah, go ahead on in guys. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, I don't, I don't even have the first line you know, in place, stretch flake charge in place in our operation in that order yet. Um, but I want to make a search and then now somebody's trapped above the fire and we have a water emergency and uh, we were seeing some of the, the tragedies that we're seeing across the country. So um, I guess to answer your question with that diatribe and a long answer, um, I think it's very important that every department, I don't care what size you are, has these predetermined you know, riding assignments or seat assignments, whatever you want to call them. All right. Now, with you uh, uh, having been with Milwaukee for a, a very long time, when did when did the notion kick in of um, you were, of course, you come in as a backstep that you wanted to promote to something higher, uh, higher than a firefighter? Uh, early on, because I was a single income <laughs> uh, parent uh, family for a while. Yeah, I was, you know. Um, you know, it was just, uh, you know, my income supporting a family and, you know, mortgage kid and uh, cars, et cetera. So obviously it was very appealing to promote, um, you know, but it, you know, in all honesty, it was something I always wanted to do. Obviously I started in, you know, the volleys and, um, you know, another paid job just, you know, until my name came off the list from Milwaukee. So I kind of had a plan in my head that's, you know, Hey, I'm going to start studying early and I'll give you kind of a really cool uh, story. Um, my very first day in Milwaukee, and obviously, you know, they don't care, you know, or we don't care. I should say when, you know, where you come from, you're, you know, you're a probie. Uh, we call them Cubs in our department um, on day one. And, you know, we're going to train you the Milwaukee way because it's the best way. Right. So um, I remember sitting there um, in the watch room 
um, when the my battalion chief came in for rounds the very first day, and he was a, a mountain of a man. His name was uh, uh, Chief Pachinski. Um, you know, names is as big as the guy was. Big walrus mustache, smoked a cigar all the time, and kind of the the guy you dreamed about becoming in your career. And you know, of course, you're shaking out your shorts, and you're sitting there in the watch room. And you know, I was on a captain shift, so I have a captain in there and a battalion chief. And you know, I knew I was going to get. Here's my expectations as a as a, as a probie, you know, with this battalion chief and in this company. And, um, he says, Hey, sit down kid. And I sit down and I looked at him and he goes, uh, you know, I know you came from somewhere else. We don't really care about that. Just like I said, and, um, but I hear you have a, a pretty good head on your shoulders and uh, you're a good kid. And so I'm going to give you some advice. I need you to start reading one, at least one department policy per day, starting right now for promotion. And I'm looking at him like, are you, are you kidding me? You know, I'm not even thinking about if I would even said I wanted to be a lieutenant uh, my first year that, you know, they would have you know threw me out of the, the window of the firehouse. And um, and he was dead serious. He goes, no, I'm not kidding. He goes, read a, a number notice is what we call them, which is our kind of our general orders. Uh, read one of those a day, read a policy per day, even if it's CMS and um, do that um, until you start studying for the lieutenant exam, because once you start, or once you're eligible for the lieutenant exam, uh, you're going to understand how the policies are written, how they're structured, and you are essentially just reviewing at that time in your uh, preparation for promotion. And he was right. You know, I took it to heart. I started doing that. And obviously, you do that a lot on probation anyway. But after I was off probation, rather than kicking your feet up and, you know, sitting there and you know, watching TV, you know, with everybody and, and hanging out. Um, or working on whatever, you know, I was, I was sitting the books and, and whatnot. I mean, I was pretty motivated. Obviously I'm a, you know, uh, the consummate overachiever uh, based on the, the, the luck I've had in my career, but uh, that was probably the best advice I ever had uh, for promotion. And, and um, from there, you know, you know, I studied years for the lieutenant exam. Lieutenant exam is the hardest uh, or the lieutenant's position, I should say is the, the hardest promotion on the market fire department to get. Hmm. Um, because you have, I mean, we have a driver's position. Uh, we call them heavy equipment operators. We have lieutenants, captains, battalion chiefs, deputies, assistants, and then chief. So plenty of places to, you know, you know, park your career. And, uh, but you have, you're competing against drivers and you're competing against backstep firefighters for the lieutenant position. So it's a bloodbath um, to get that lieutenant position. So you have to study hard and, um, but you have time. I mean, we, you can't take a lieutenant exam in the city of Milwaukee unless you have six years on the job or five with a degree. Obviously, with my education, I was able to take it in five years, and I got promoted in uh, my sixth year to a lieutenant. Okay. Perfect segue to the next question, or one of the questions I ask. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that there should be, in your opinion, a years of service clause for promotion? Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, that's a loaded question. Um I've heard some great responses in some of your other podcasts to this one, but I'm going to kind of give you mine. Um, I, I'm going to say yes. There are some jobs. Uh, the biggest job in the country, the FDNY, you can take a lieutenant exam after a year on the job. You can have a year and a cup of coffee on the job, and you can take a lieutenant exam um, in that job. Um, some jobs are two years, three years. Um, and it's really dependent on the individual. I know that's you know kind of a cop-out answer. Um but I'm going to say yes. I, I like the the way we do it in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, five years is a long time. Your top pay. You've gone through the whole act of, you know, your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth year as a firefighter. 
Um, maybe you took a driver's test um, there, but you're still kind of, you know, um, you know, at that, you know, initial entry level position. So you really get a, a grasp on uh, not just how good you are, but how good other bosses are. Right. Um, Cause you can learn from the bad ones as, as much as you can learn from the good ones. And, you know, sitting in the back for five years, uh, even, you know, some, some don't take the, you know, lieutenant exam for 20 years and, you know, they make the best bosses in a lot of, a lot of respects, but, um, so you really get a firm grasp, not just on the department's operations, uh, administrative stuff. Uh, but again, you know, how you would handle situations if you were the boss. Now we can act lieutenant in our department too, that you only need a year and a cup of coffee for. So if the boss is off or the boss has to go down town for something or, um, is stepping out for a few hours, we can put somebody in the front seat. So you do get some of that experience. Uh, during those initial five years, um, and it's invaluable. Um, I used to jump on it. It's kind of uh, one of those, you know, the lieutenant captain walk in and say, uh, hey, I, you know, I got to split for a few hours. Who wants to hop up front? And, you know, sometimes you'll see five hands go up. Sometimes you'll see two hands go up. And, and you know, I always raised my hands. I always wanted that experience. Um, so I was ready for it. Um, so I guess to, to truly answer your question, you know, there should be, so you have time to get ready for it. And, you know, it's for all the above that I just mentioned, but you know, it's, it's, you know, getting promoted with a couple of years on, you're kind of learning a lieutenant's or captain's job, depending on what you're, you, you call your entry level officer position uh, as you're going. And I think, you know, you're kind of left wanting in a lot of respects because you haven't worked with that great boss or that shitty boss. Right. Um, you know, we've all worked with both. And, um, and you, you know, after a few years, you can tell which one is which very easily. And mm -hmm. if you don't have that experience, you don't even know which one you are in a lot of respects. So that's, um, that can be troubling as well. So I know I'm kind of biased based on, you know, my career progression and chronology, but, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm in agreement that there should be at least three to five years um, of time. Okay. I, I would have to agree with you on that. I think that there should be some time before you're allowed to test up to to the next rank. And I understand there's some jurisdictions, municipalities that can't do that for whatever reason, but I, I am hundred percent agreement with you that I, I think it, it develops you as a fireman and it, it, it lets you see a different perspective before just jumping, you know, with both feet in. So um, out of all the positions that you've held, what's been your favorite? Well, I'm going to ruin this, this uh, question here, but um, one of the great adages that, that, that I've uh, kind of come up with is you'll always promote out of the jobs you love. And I loved being a fireman. I loved being a lieutenant, a captain, battalion chief, and even a deputy chief. I would say, I mean, to, to fairly answer your question, I would say I really enjoyed being a captain. Um, it was, I was, I think at the right time and age in my life when, um, you know, I was given control. Uh, and I, obviously when you promote by us, uh, you bounce for a while, especially lieutenant. I mean, you, we used to bounce for five or six years as a lieutenant, uh, until you got a spot. Uh, I was lucky to get one in about three years. And as a captain, uh, you'll get a house pretty quick nowadays, but I bounced my first year as a captain and, um, was lucky that I had a hookup in operations and then uh, I ended up getting the spotted engine 32 when that opened. Uh, a boss was uh, splitting, just wasn't really working out there. So he left for 
uh, greener pastures, uh, have you. And I was able to hop into that spot and you know, I really loved it. And it was, uh, it was a tough shop to work at, but you know, the, you have a lot of influence as a chief and you know, a lot of chiefs that on this podcast have said it. And a lot of chiefs will say it everywhere else as a battalion chief and above, you have a lot of influence on, on your department, et cetera. As a captain, you have a lot of influence in the company and you also have a lot of influence in your battalion, uh, at that rank where, um, if you have a great shop, everyone's going to want to come over there. Everyone's going to want to go to fires with you. They're going to really lean on that captain, um, for advice, other officers from other companies, they'll come to you and you're the one they want to come to before they come to a battalion chief. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was fortunate. I was in a very busy battalion at engine 32, um, at the time. And I worked with just a bunch of killer officers. So I had a lot of help, uh, a lot of people uh, to lean on, um, you know, and again, I was at a place in my career, what, you know, where I was able to help, uh, and develop a few individuals and, and officers, et cetera. So that I believe, um, was the brass ring in my career. Um, now a lot of guys will tell you that the spot I retired from as a city tour commander is a brass ring. And it is, I mean, I, I do a little bit of staffing in the morning and then I go to fires the rest of the day. That's really all I was doing at the end there. And, you know, but that captain's job is everything as a firefighter you want to be in your career and at least in my department, I should say. And, uh, I think I had the greatest uh, influence uh, in that position. Okay. Um, is it safe to say engine 32 is, or was, or still is probably one of the busiest companies in Milwaukee? Uh, oh yes. Yeah. There it's uh, engine 32 and letter nine are quartered together. Uh, it's the shop everyone wants to go to. Um, it's tough to get a spot there out of the Academy unless you're a chief's kid. Um, but it's where it's where everybody wants to go, and we have a there's one right up the street, Engine Thirty, Ladder Twelve, uh, same kind of place. We have a lot of, a lot of houses like that in the city of Milwaukee. And with our cuts that I mentioned before, every house is turning into an Engine Thirty Two run wise. Um, I mean, it's it, but you know it's in a great great part of town. Um, you know, it's you know Milwaukee has seen a lot of its ups and downs uh, on the socioeconomic scale. And, um, you know, we a lot, have a lot of abject poverty and engine 32 is, um, I believe it's in the poorest, one of the poorest zip codes in the nation. So, um, as a neighborhood that, that needs a fire department more than a lot of other neighborhoods. So it's also, uh, home to a lot of Loatian, uh, immigration in the city of Milwaukee. And so you have, um, you know, a very eclectic, uh, diverse neighborhood, You'll have uh, you'll have high rise residential. Um, you have um, project buildings. You have all, all the above. Uh, two and a half stories, private dwellings, bungalows. I, I mean, it, it's the it, it's kind of the the universe, and that whole area is kind of the universe in the city of Milwaukee to be a firefighter. Okay, all right. Um, how important do you believe communication is amongst the rank and file, regardless of? Milwaukee, but just in fire departments in general, because you hear of so many uh, quarrels, beefs, uh, uh, administration doesn't doesn't get it. They don't remember what it's like. So how how did climbing through the ranks, especially when you when you started to get to that battalion chief, captain level and higher, how important is communication uh, from the rank and file up and you know down? Um. <clears throat> That's a heavy question. So I'm going to kind of give you a heavy answer for it. Um, 
Now, I subscribe to kind of a just culture mindset. A just culture means everybody kind of has a say, so to speak, similar inter- interdependence where, um, you know, I expect people from all ranks, um, from Poro Bayan up to, to say something. You know, obviously in my job, we're very hierarchical, uh, paramilitary like every other metropolitan city. But I, you know, as a chief officer, as a lieutenant captain, even, you know, I really wanted to hear what was on the minds of my, my personnel. And, you know, I didn't have every answer, obviously no chief does. And, you know, sometimes firefighters, lieutenants, captains, they just want to bitch in front of a chief. They just want to vent. And oftentimes battalion chiefs can, you know, mess it up by giving you the the quotes, uh, chief's perspective, right. As the, well, here's why we came up with this policy. You know what? Just sometimes let the guys bitch and be that sounding board in that ear, you'll probably pick up something, you know, if you keep your ears open that maybe you can bring up, you know, upstairs as we call it metaphorically on my job. And, and, um, you know, we can fix something, repair a policy, you know, um, change something, et cetera. And, you know, everyone usually has a good answer. And, you know, I guess to put it into perspective, when we look at why I think there's a lot of ill communication, um, and we can talk about leadership and management in a bit here, but I really think to put it in perspective, now as a firefighter, it's all funny, right? You know, mm-hmm. people's misfortunes, you know, uh, people sucking at fires, uh, you know, something happening to somebody off duty, et cetera. When you're a boss, half of it's funny. And when you're a chief, none of it's funny. And that's just the the reality of the job and kind of a, the rite of passage, if you will. So a lot of people come down hard on chiefs because they're maybe not receptive to something or, or maybe they just don't give them the answer they want to hear. But as a chief, you have to take care of people how they need it, not necessarily how they want it. And I think that's kind of the disconnect that we see amongst rank and file is, you know, you get kind of that group think in the firehouse where they're like, well, you know, it's BS that so-and-so got jammed up the way he or she did. And uh, sometimes that's true. And sometimes you realize, ah, it's not the full story because once that tape recorder comes out and, um, you know, the official investigation has begun and you're sitting upstairs and, you know, down in uh, headquarters and, you know, you're talking to the man, um, you'll see a lot of sides of the story that you don't hear in the firehouse come out as to why something happened or, or other parts that were left out, you know, by the, um, by the bad actors in a lot of these situations. So, um, and we keep that stuff close to the breast. You know, we don't leak that mm-hmm. back out. So you never hear the full side of the story. And that's why some people, they kind of get hurt feelings and kind of lose some trust in, in their administrations. But uh, thankfully, um, the administration I left working for when I retired in August um, was one that, you know, our, our rank and file can trust. They, you know, it was a breath of fresh air um, when this new administration came in, uh, com- you know, compared to our previous one where, you know, that trust was kind of back. We didn't have to worry about, you know, stuff leaking out or, or, you know, some vicious stuff coming down or or backdoor dealing um, to get stuff handled and disciplinary stuff straightened out. So, um, but sometimes, yeah, I mean, it just, sometimes you're not going to, to hear the whole story. Sometimes administration is not going to, you know, respond to certain questions that you may have because there, there's usually a very good reason as to why we're not saying something, et cetera. Um, you know, it could be, you know, budget reasons, et cetera, stuff leaks out and somebody runs to a, a councilman and, you know, dimes the administration out as to what they're intending to do. It can ruin the whole thing. So um, 
so I think there the, that's uh, you know there's myriad reasons for that disconnect. Okay. All right. Um, another question I I try to try to remember it all together, but sometimes it's a little bit much. Uh, what type of schedule does Milwaukee utilize? Yeah, we have what's uh, in the Midwest. We call it the Chicago schedule, and it's the one on two off. And we have uh, pit off days. I believe we get seven or six. I'm sorry, six of those a year. Um, on top of that, and in, uh, in addition to your holidays, vacations, and uh, paid off time, etc. So, um, but it is the uh, the 24 on 48 off. Okay. Uh, and before you left, was there any talks, or were the uh, rank and file good with that, or because you know that mm-hmm. the, the schedule topic is kind of a hot debate right now going on. Yeah, and I'll tell you what I think this uh, uh, kind of a cool question to ask because yeah we we are in uh, flux in the city market right now. Uh, now we're suffering what a lot of big cities are suffering, not even the small cities I should say uh, for that matter. Um, we are mandating an ungodly amount of people to work every day now. Uh, it was the worst part of my job as I left is where I would grease anywhere from thirty to fifty people a day during the, the nicer weather and weekends. And, um, and that's a lot of people to Greece in the morning that are thinking they're going home. And then the battalion chief calls and says, uh, no, 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 you're sticking around for another 24, you know, especially in companies that are running, you know, 5,500, 6,500 runs a year. Right. Um, so we, we, you know, we, we took a, a good look at that and I've always been of the mindset that the schedule needs to be fixed in the fire service. Uh, I'm all about 24 hour shifts. I know a lot of people are, are you know, you know, sit outside my house with pitchforks and torches, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think with the mandate issues, the, the staffing issues that a lot of cities are having the workload that most cities have now, um, we need to seriously look at that 24 hour shift. I know a lot of jobs like the 4896, I don't, that wouldn't work in my town because you'd be a zombie mm-hmm. even more than the current schedule. Uh, and some jobs love it. I mean, I heard Charlotte hate, uh, loves it. And I heard, uh, da- um, uh, Houston loves it. So I, I, I don't know what the, you know, the, the wins and losses are with that schedule. Cause obviously not many jobs do that, do that by us, but, um, but what the fire department is looking at now is adding a fourth shift to the city of Milwaukee mm-hmm. and going to a one on one on three off. And, you know, we're able to, you know, kind of look at that and, and it, it's a, it's a reality. It'll take some work. It'll take, uh, you know, some obviously negotiations with, uh, you know, the bargaining unit, et cetera, the, you know, local 215, the union in our department, but um, I'm hoping it happens. And um, I think a good muse, a lot of departments should use to, if they want that shift is uh, to look at what Detroit did. Detroit works uh, what I call the dream schedule. They work one on one off one on five off, I believe. And um, you know, that's, that's great, especially, you know, if you work another job or for your, the, um, you know, childcare issues, et cetera, but, you know, for behavioral and physiological health, I think that schedule is more conducive to a better quality of life than any that I've heard. So, um, if I were to champion one schedule it would be Detroit's for sure. And do you know if Detroit still has just three shifts to do that schedule? They they're doing it with four. They're doing it with four. Yeah. See, that's, that's where, I think that's where the set, like, I, I love the fact that we're, we're looking at the data because there are, mm-hmm. and, and don't get me wrong. There are certain places that if you work at 2448, 
if you're barely, if you're de- department wide, barely cracking like 2000 calls, I, I think you can manage, but the big municipalities, the, even the smaller companies that are running, like you said, five or 6,000 calls, uh, the, the biggest factor that I know, whether your city or town or board's going to have to agree on is you have to hire a completely, you have to put on a whole another shift to do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes your department is, it's, it's organizationally ripe as the way I put it for adding a fourth shift. Uh, case by like, like Detroit, um, obviously we run four and or five on our engines and trucks. Um, but we staff on paper, we staff most of our rigs with, you know, a minimum of five, sometimes six. So you have those budgeted four positions. And what Detroit did is, and, and I'm, I'm going to kind of speak anecdotally from my conversations with those guys. Um, but they just essentially did the shell game, move those positions around and realized they only needed to hire maybe 20, 30 guys to, to make that happen. And Milwaukee's in, in a similar situation. Um, I'm not going to opine on, on kind of how that should happen or will happen on the job. It's, it's the talks are underway and I'm, I'm hoping it comes to fruition, but there are, uh, contingencies to, to get that or to make that less painful. And I think departments should turn over every stone to look for them. And, um, and it has, you know, tangible benefits. Let's look at recruitment. I mean, you know, the Milwaukee fire department had a very low turnout for its last uh, recruitment. And that breaks my heart because it, it's, it's a phenomenal department. It's a f- phenomenal place to work. And to see so few people interested in that job is heart wrenching. I, mean, I remember standing in line with 16,000 people um, to take my exam and, and, you know, dreaming of, of being, being a Milwaukee firefighter. I mean, it was just, you know, I, I, I have vivid memories of those days and what those were like and, you know, getting that letter in the mail of uh, where you're at on the list is, you know, is um, some of the best moments of your career. But the recruitment will be, I mean, obviously we'd probably steal every suburban firefighter in the, in the, in the state. In fact, we've had a, um, an exodus of our very, some of our younger firefighters to the suburbs because of the workload and the mandates, et cetera. And that's one of the impetuses for, um, looking at that fourth shift is kind of um, kind of doing the right thing to to help our people and you know you know have them live long successful healthy careers and enjoy coming into work and a schedule like that you'll miss coming into work because you're gonna be off a lot that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I, I would I would have to agree with you. I I I hope that Milwaukee can can get that passed and a lot of other departments. Um, I mean, I, realistically speaking for myself, the station I'm at, I, you know, some days we're what I call busy, but everybody's definition of busy is different. But mm-hmm. I, I believe if you're riding an apparatus that's running over, a, a single apparatus that's running over 35, 4,000 calls, that's busy. That's uh, a busy shot. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely busy. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those two-sided coins because, you know, you'll have areas that are arguing that, Hey, we need to go to this, but the call stats don't match what you're trying to go for. Well, let's, uh, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy here. So let's, let's, let's kind of talk about that for a second. I mean, you have, like when I came on the job, 
um, engine 21 ran about 2,400 runs. Now they're up to probably 4,000 plus based on area cuts and stuff. They lost engine six and, um, engine five. There's a lot, a lot of rigs surrounding them that, uh, that were disbanded. And now they're, you know, picking up that slack. And back then that was considered a busy engine. Not just because that was a common number for, you know, what we called bridesmaids engines back then, but, um, they were busy throughout the day at a very, very small response area, but it was high rise residential. It was these massive Queen Anne two and a half stories. They went down um, parts of downtown and, you know, you would, they had all kinds of run types there. They would, they would go on more gas leaks and elevators and stuff like that than uh, a lot of their other engines. And um, so it was kind of like a, um, a good place to work in terms of the, the type of work you're getting. And most of the officers that were there were good bosses and they drilled all day. So you take those 2,400 runs, you take an hour or two of drill per day. Um, some of the other stuff they're involved in and they're busier than most. Right. And I don't care if you work in suburbia, ex-Serbia, you know, if you're doing fire inspections throughout the day, public education throughout the day on top of drilling and working out and whatnot, you are busy. I mean, that's time brain power, et cetera. And now you're doing mm-hmm. that for 24 hours and you get a run or two after midnight, you're as busy as any other, you know, shop around the country. Right. Um, so I think a lot of people dismiss themselves for, for their workload based on run type alone. And I think it's the, the opposite of that. I think it's how active are you? And, you know, full disclosure of the city of Milwaukee, we don't do fire inspections. We don't do hydrants. We don't do, we do very limited pub eggs. We have you know people for that. And um, so a Milwaukee firefighter comes in and just runs EMS runs and goes to fires. And we're very fortunate that, that we get to just do that, but you know, we drill, et cetera, and stay busy with that. Um, but you add all those other duties into a, those runs and it would be an ungodly workload. So, you know, it's really kind of, you know, uh, it's kind of gray. It's a gray area in terms of what makes a busy versus a slow company. In my opinion, it's really how active are you doing fire department stuff per during the day is what makes you busy. I would have to agree with that. Yeah, you're right. That's a definitely a great way of looking at it. Uh, as far as the, let me make sure I had that question, right? Um, Yes, as far as the leadership and management topic, you said you wanted to hit on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, that's it's 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 one of those things. So, from what I understand, uh, uh, seeing you you guys have a uh, a buff in your area that takes a lot of really good mm-hmm. Milwaukee firefighter photography. So, um, reading comments and, and things of that nature. Uh, most firemen want to have a, whether it's a fire chief, a battalion chief, division chief, we, we, we like to have what we call firefighters chiefs, you know, mm-hmm. chiefs that never forgot what it was like being one of the guys on the rig and things of that nature. What's your take on, on that regarding the, you know, that and leadership and management. Ooh, um, I'll soapbox a little bit here. Um, yeah, the the uh, I want to give a quick mention of that photographer you mentioned. His name is Scott Carnahan, um, yes. phenomenal photographer. Yes. Um, he's on Instagram and Facebook. Um, please, please go follow him, uh, support his pages. He actually is a higher up at a uh, Fortune 500 company in the area, 
and his passion is taking, you know, fire photos. And, you know, obviously people bust my chops because they said, you, you, you know, I used to have a personal photographer because he would take pictures of me at fires. Um, but he takes pictures of as many firefighters as he can, and he charges nothing for photos. I probably just screwed him out of a business venture, but he charges nothing for photos. Most fire photographers do, and I completely agree with charging because obviously, you know, you're spending your gas time and, and diamond taking fire photos. But, you know, his reward is capturing these great shots. And if you go to his page, you see some phenomenal what I consider Pulitzer Prize level uh, photography. And, um, you know, he just, he captures the, the essence of, of being a firefighter and Milwaukee firefighter uh, more specifically. And um, it's just, just amazing having him there. And I'll tell you what, at you know, on January 15th, it could be 40 below zero outside. And, you know, I'm bundled up, I'm standing outside of a fire building, standing under a tower ladder, getting soaked. And I turn around and there's, you know, a lens over my shoulder and Scott at three in the morning. Um, and he has to go into work that next morning or hop on a plane to travel to China to do some factory stuff. It's insane. Um, you know, his level of commitment to, to capture uh, fires in the same walkie, but uh, getting back on topic. Um, yeah. Leadership and management. Um, when we talk about firefighters chiefs in a second, uh, please remind me if case I, I, I go on my, soliloquy and forget to do that but um i guess i'll start by saying you know i have all the leaders i need in the milwaukee fire department you know i have a lieutenant in the captain's list with hundreds of names on there so i technically have all the leaders i need right um what i need more than anything are managers and i think we've lost the difference between what leadership and management is and i think that's led to a lot of problems in the fire service I mean, there's a lot of great people out there teaching leadership stuff. I'm not taking anything away from them. Um, but I think we're there's a lack of focus on the management side of uh, the job. Um, you know, um, going to fires is easy. Again, you know, and I'll speak to, to my department. You know, going to fires and EMS runs and all the other emergencies, that's easy because we literally have step-by-step, you know, how-tos um, in the forms of SOPs or SOGs to do that. So that's the easy part of being a boss. The hardest part is everything else. Um, and I'll sound cliche. I'm sure a lot of guys are giving the similar response on, on this podcast, but, you know, dealing with personnel, dealing with the hard stuff, dealing with the hard decisions, the unpopular ones, that's where you become a boss. Um, kind of taking your own ego and bias to center out is harder than you think. And it's harder to be as good a listener as you think. It's hard to um, stop wanting and needing to be right all the time. Um, and I'm getting a little touchy-feely on that stuff. But, you know, there's a lot more that goes into being a boss. And, again, that, you know, kind of echoes the sentiment we had with, you know, time on the job before you take it. And five years isn't a lot of time on the job with a degree or six years on our job, um, respectively, to take a lieutenant exam. I mean, I'm not saying that's even long enough. But usually in that time frame, you're going to learn a lot of leadership and management principles. And, you know, we all know, you know, what our bad bosses are like on our job based on reputation, based on what you observe, uh, the empiricism uh, operationally or handling situations. But, you know, again, operational stuff, easy peasy. Uh, the rest of it is uh, is 
you know, where the rubber meets the road. And I'll give you kind of a, uh, an adage that a, a very well-loved battalion chief of my job gave me when I made lieutenant, uh, when I was a covering lieutenant. Um, he sat me down. He said, hey, look, and this, this is kind of all unjust here, but he said, you can send your entire company to the burn center because you screwed up at a fire and they'll eventually forgive you. They'll understand. They'll, you know, they'll kind of look at it maybe your way. Um, eventually their family might forgive you, et cetera. If you fuck up their time card, all that's out the window. So that's <laughs> the difference, right? So, um, and I apologize for, for using French there, but that's, that's no, how you're I fine. put it to me. Yeah. So that's yeah. how I put, that's how I put it to me. And, uh, and I, I remember sitting there going, yeah, he's right. Mm-hmm. You know? So, you know, although that he, you know, he's saying that in jest, he's absolutely right. You know, what I need are managers on, on the department and I need somebody that's going to not screw up a time card. Somebody that's going to understand FLSA and what, what I'm getting and what paperwork I file. You know, what do I do if I'm jammed up? Um, you know, I have this going on in my personal life. How do I, you know, get this, this guy or girl help? You know, um, I have an unmotivated firefighter and, you know, in my job, in a lot of other cities, you know, you don't work with the same people every day all the time. Now you have assigned crews to your company, but there's always one or two people off. Right. So you would get somebody from across town, either a, you've never seen before in your career, uh, or be somebody that may have a bad reputation or isn't really motivated, et cetera. Is it really kind of up to speed on your company's, uh, acts, so to speak. And you have to, that's the stuff you have to manage. And, um, if you can do all of that, if people see that you handle stuff when it needs handling and that you make those hard decisions and, you know, anyone listening to this is going to, you know, laugh at some of the stuff that, that we argue about in the firehouse. Like I remember, you know, almost a week and a half, you know, nightmare where I made a decision to throw out a rotten piss stained couch, uh, you know, from the apparatus floor and guys are like, Oh, we want to make room for this work. I said, then throw the damn thing out. So I made a decision to throw out this couch and, you know, two other shifts took it upon themselves to say, Oh my God, or, you know, you know, this covering boss is flipping the place upside down. Oh my God, I can't believe he's on you know, this guy's only assigned here temporarily because he's covering for a guy, whatever. And, but you have to manage that stuff, you know, and those are some of the, the bad decisions you make and you learn from those. And, um, you know, the other thing is, you know, a, a lot of, one of the questions we don't ask in, you know, assessment centers or promotional exams is how do you come down on a guy that you've known for a while who's mm-hmm. done something wrong? Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Where are you going to do that? You know, um, because once you do that, the relationship changes forever. I don't care what people say. If you are a supervisor, you come down as a subordinate. I don't care if you help that guy roof his house the day before. You come down on that guy. Um, the relationship has changed, so you have to be aware of that. Some people call it prick pay. I disagree with that that term. You don't need to be a prick about anything. You just need to be a boss. Um, and do that. I mean, I, you know, uh, when I was a captain, I came down on a guy. I but to this day I love and and you know would jump off a cliff for if you asked me to. Um, we were on our millionth run after midnight and um, this individual is going to do something intentionally wrong on an EMS run. Uh, he was just burned out. And I said, no, no, why don't we not do that? And I, and I went back to quarters. And I ripped his face off. Um, you know, it was a very egregious act and it was completely out of the guy's character. 
So I pulled, I waited until everybody walked back in like zombies back to the, the bunk. And I said, Hey man, come here for a second. And uh, we had it out and uh, right on the front of the rig. And, you know, it was one of those moments in my career. I realized, oh, you know, I'm, I think I'm kind of getting it and kind of how to do it the right way. And, and, um, you know, face was saved, you know, for this individual and, and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we were able to, you know, figure out some control measures to, to not get us to that point, uh, on runs, et cetera, you know, dividing the work up a little bit, et cetera. So, and that's one of a million scenarios that you're going to have to deal with as an officer. Um, and, you know, in our day and age, and especially the city of Milwaukee with the mandates, I mean, you're working with that dynamic pretty much every night in the fire. Also as a boss, are you ready for burnt out crews? Are you worried? Um, are you managing some of the stuff that's falling through the cracks as a result, et cetera? That's what makes you a boss. And, um, you know, once people see that you can handle all of the above, you can handle their time card and those individuals and tough situations like that. Um, then they're going to start looking at you as the leader and that's where leadership comes in. Um, you know, if you look back at every boss that you admired or wanted to be like, um, they're all different. Every chief that I idolized, every single one of them was different, but they just had it right. Um, they just had that way about them where they made those decisions and they were what you viewed as a good manager. So, um, and we confuse that with them being great leaders. So, you know, leadership is just management practiced very well. Once you get that part of your job down, you will be the de facto leader and uh, the one everyone wants to work for. Very well stated. <laughs> um, and uh, firefighters, chiefs. Oh, <laughs> you know, I like I said, you know, I, I, I wrote an article or not an article. I wrote one of the chapters in one of Billy Goldfeder's uh, passing on books on this. Uh, I think I call it your, sh your shirt always looks white or something like that. I'm probably butchering my own title, but um, a lot of the newer chiefs are the ones that you don't view as a firefighter's chief. And usually your old saltier ones, the ones with time tend to kind of get gravitate towards that reputation. I think it's just by default. And I'll tell you why when you're a newer chief, you know, and I'm actually working on a book uh, like a, for field chief officers we're giving some of these points. So I'll kind of spoil my own. Um, work here but the a lot of times a new chief has this kind of air about him like ah, you know i'm a, you know i might have been a captain in a busy shop but you know what i'm a young battalion chief. i was a very young battalion chief you know i i never met a promotion i didn't like but you know i i, I just enjoyed you know promoting and studying for exams and and was very lucky to have promoted as fast as i did so i was a young battalion chief and then this is a faux pas i made where i would come in and I mentioned it earlier, I'd be at a kitchen table and somebody, you know, they, they try to, you know, put you on the spot and throw something out there, get on, you know, ruffle your feathers a little bit to see how you react and what your, you know, have you changed? Have you forgot where you came from kind of stuff? And we all do it. I did it as a firefighter, lieutenant captain as well as the chiefs, but um, there's one or two ways you can react to, to, to those kinds of scenarios where one, sometimes people just want to bitch in front of a chief. There's, you know, most policies that come out aren't favorable to the troops right off the bat, right? Cause it's, it's a change. It's a different way of doing things. There's a lot of stuff to remember and do on this job. And now to, to have to change something they're, they're used to is always causes dissent. Right. So uh, sometimes they'll gripe about it. The full pie you're going to make is 
letting everybody finish and then saying, well, I might agree with you, but here's why we have to do this. And then you give your chief's perspective and you just, you just nuked yourself at the kitchen table. Um, Cause after a while, if you continue to do that, how much stuff do you think they're going to bring up to you from there on in? Mm-hmm. And again, I like that just culture mindset where I want to hear what the troops are thinking. I want to hear um, what they think about certain things, not necessarily to be, you know, to, to fall into the group think that's pervasive in the firehouse or to go along to get along. Like those, those chiefs uh, are, are the worst out there, but you know, oftentimes they have a perspective I've never thought of. And, you know, sitting in on staff meetings, it's just a bunch of chiefs talking at the table. Right. So um, chiefs have that perspective. Again, none of it's funny, you know, rules, regs, this and that, where, you know, we're the ones holding the bag, you know, the, we're the ones talking to the media at fires. So, you know, we kind of come off a little more heavy handed than we, we need to sometimes, which isn't always bad, but sometimes it is. And mm-hmm. when you hear something come from the table, which is the center of the universe in the fire fire department. Um, sometimes you get those aha moments and then you make a phone call to, you know, one of your assistant chiefs say, Hey, you know, it was a great idea here. Give the guys credit and stuff gets changed all the time. At least, you know, we have that interdependence on, on my job where you know, we change stuff on the fly sometimes, you know, that's just the way it should be uh, based on, you know, good ideas and thoughts. Um, conversely, sometimes you need to say, uh, no to the good ideas as well. You know, there's tons of great ideas and sometimes they're not always um, able to be implemented. So you got to learn how to say no to those too in the right way. But, um, but, you know, as you become more receptive to that stuff and, you know, taking care of the troops, again, being a good manager. So a chief that takes care of a boss backs the boss um, doesn't necessarily, you know, usurp their authority in the firehouse Um Etc. Then you gain that trust. Once you have the trust of the troops, um, you know they're going to bring everything to you and um, take care of them at fires. You know, don't don't be afraid to change anything at fires. But they, if they know that you're making sure it's going according to plan, which is really the only thing they want a chief to do at a fire, right? Um, if you do that, you get that that institutional trust, and uh, you know they'll like like having you at fires and. Um, so that's why you see a lot of these more experienced chiefs having that kind of reputation. And and these chiefs have to step on their, you know, their own foot here and there. That's just the, the right of passage in any rank. But, you know, chiefs more than, than others will, will make more mistakes in the beginning than they will uh, uh, or have more, mis- you know, uh, losses than they do successes, uh, you know, the first few months or years of chief. Um, I don't mean to be long-winded on the answer, but, you know, when I made – Italian chief, a sage old assistant chief uh, was talking to me and, and he said, you know, look, you're a young chief. You've been in busy shops, but I don't care if you've had 30 years at engine 32 before you made battalion chief. Um, it will take you an entire year where you feel comfortable uh, in your rank in that position of battalion chief because you're responsible for so much um, activity going on in uh, four or five firehouses in your battalion. You have 50 or 60 people you're responsible for, 30, 50, whatever it is. And, um, you know, that's a lot to manage. And on top of that, now you have to make sure that a fire goes according to plan. You have to make sure um, emergencies go well, um, greater alarms, all that stuff. Um, There's a lot to do. And he he was right. And I remember I was sitting in the quarters of Engine 18. Um, I had just about a year as a battalion chief. And... Call comes in right down the street. Uh, it was a fire. As soon as you know, I ran out to my buggy. 
you could see the plume and the header off in the, the horizon about you know, 10 blocks away. And dispatcher gets on the radio and says, we got numerous calls, which is always what, a, what, a, what we want to hear over the radio. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we have, uh, re, you know, we have jumpers, you know, I hopped in my buggy, started it up, let the engine uh, go in front of me, fall into the fire. And I just remember being calm going, no, oh, I got this. Here's what we're going to do. I got my engine with me. So I know the first line's coming off right in front of me. So, um, versus me having to kind of, you know, check on what's, what's going on with the first line when I get there. So that's when it kind of hit me that he was right. That was some of the best advice I got as a chief, um, is take that entire year, learn the job, get good at it. Um, have your full pause, your mea culpas, all, uh, all the, the misfortunes, get that out of the way. Cause you will, you'll have tons of them throughout your career, uh, any year as a chief, but you know, your first year after that first year, you kind of reflect on your position and what you've learned and realize you have, you know, the frequency under your belt, you have the runs, um, you have the personnel issues, you've, you know, who the good and bad bosses are in your battalion. Um, and tell yourself, yeah, you got this. All right. And the last question to end this, your decision to retire, mm-hmm. was it, was it you telling yourself I've, I've done all I've done I've had a successful career. I want to, I want to be around for whether it's a spouse, grandkids. Um, what, what, uh, I mean, I don't want to like go all in your business, but when did sure. you know it was time to say, all right, I'm done. I'm hanging it up. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, it, this is the only job I've known since high school. Um, I'm in my 31st year. Um, about to head into my 32nd year in the fire service. Uh, you're never going to do everything you wanted to do in your career. Uh, obviously I've been able to live the life of 10 firefighters. I was able to say in my walkout, I've been very fortunate to, you know, I've been teaching at FDIC for over shoot 22 years now. Um, being involved at the national level, you know, being, you know, asked to join the you know, UL's uh, fire safety research Institute board, uh, travel all over the country, you know, meeting and speaking and teaching with firefighters, um, meeting the best firefighters in the world, um, you know, being able to call, you know, some of them great friends. One of them is my best friend. And doing all that and all the experiences, I mean, I, I'd, that'd be an hour podcast being able to, you know, re- just reflect, which um, is where I think everyone should get to in their career before they decide to pull. Um, very fortunate to work in a phenomenal fire department that gave me all the fires and emergencies that I could ask for on a daily basis. And, um, so I got to see, uh, you know, a lot of stuff, do a lot of stuff, make some very, um, dangerous decisions, um, see amazing rescues performed by the, the most badass firefighters in the country being involved in those as well. And, um, so you'll never get your full or your fill, I should say, in this job, but you'll get to a level of satisfaction where if it ended today, I'd be good. And the decision for me to retire was more impulsive than it was a long thought out decision. Uh, you know, obviously I went past my eligibility um, in time on the job, but, you know, 
when you reach a certain age in our job and you go and you talk to the pension expert at the union and you get the actual numbers, like what it's, they'll, he'll, you know, he'll drill it down to the penny as to what your, your pension check will look like based on your time and dime. Right. And I saw that number and realized, you know what, um, if I hung on longer, that's not going to change much. Um, it'll go up, but I was at the, uh, you know, the highest I was going to go in my organization. And, uh, and I don't mean that in the negative sense at all. I, I, I had what a lot of people call the brass ring, um, in my job. And, um, I just made that decision. You know what, maybe I'm young enough where I can try some other things, you know, I'm involved in, in a family business, uh, that that's doing well. I'd be able to devote more time to that. And, um, you know, maybe pursue some other options. You know, I, I wasn't retiring to be, become a fire chief anywhere else. I didn't have another fire job lined up and, you know, I might still, you know, volunteer for my local department here, you know, kind of keep some skills up and, you know, have a kitchen table to go to and, and sit down and, and, and talk at, um, cause that's, that's what you'll miss. I know that's cliche to say, but, you know, again, I, I've had, you know, some great experiences in my life and I, I do miss the work. Uh, but I don't miss the work as much as I miss the people. Uh, again, like I said, I was very fortunate to work with phenomenal people. Um, you know, the firehouse I was in when I retired was full of uh, all kinds of uh, crazy guys and girls. And, and um, you know, when you realize that, you know, you're not having, you know, lunch and dinner with those people anymore, uh, you realize that's, that's when it really hits you is to, you know, you're gone, you're done. You're, mm -hmm. you're no longer there. And um, so you miss that, but then I, step back and reflect on everything I've been able to do. Um, like I said, and you know, it makes it all better pretty quick. Um, because I, I think I went out on top and, um, you know, I tried to be that conscientious chief that took care of guys and girls and, you know, managed like we just talked about. And, um, I think I left, um, on a high note and, you know, we do a very, very, uh, amazing walkout ceremonies on my job. And, um, to have everyone there for my walkout and, you know, walk driving out underneath the flag and, and, you know, is a great capstone of my career. And, um, you know, just to be able to, to sit and even reflect on, on my last day and giving a speech uh, just before I walked out is, is, is all I ever wanted in the fire service. And, you know, 31 years ago, I never would have thought that I ever would have walked out like that. And, and to be able to do that is, is all the satisfaction I'll ever need on this job. Oh, that's that's very humbling. Uh, I did see that image from that photographer that you mentioned, oh, and yeah. I mean it's it's powerful because that is the last that's the last time you're going to be. Now, granted, you can always come back to you know check on the men and mm -hmm. women, but that is your last time, you know, leaving a a, a place that that's been your whole life, that's been your whole career, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I can see that. I think that's every firefighter's goal is to be able to survive this uh, profession from everything we see trauma that we, we, we see people that we help people that we tried to help mm -hmm. and didn't uh, the fire station life ups and downs is what it's all about. So um, I just want to say thank you for uh, your years of service and uh, thank you for coming on to talk shop with me because you, you didn't have to do that. So um I appreciate it, Chief. No, I appreciate having me on. It's uh, it's great to talk about the job. Um, 
And you can't take enough pictures of this job and you can't talk about the job enough. So uh, it's an honor to be on here. Um, you know, hope the listeners got a little bit out of it. So maybe it's a different perspective on a few things. And uh, um, just keep an open mind for the rest of your careers. Realize the job that hires you is never the one you retire from because it will change on you. Um, you know, keep that perspective in mind. Love the job for what it is, not what you want it to be. And it'll take the, the best care of you than um, you ever could have imagined. It's a, it's a great job. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's facts. Facts on that. Yes, sir. I appreciate you, Chief. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. If any of the listeners out there are or know of a great firefighter who embodies the principles of being a great communicator, goal-oriented, hardworking, humble, passionate, and professional, regardless of rank, career, or volunteer, contact me at studentofthegamefirepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay focused, stay committed, and stay safe.